Hovering over the skies of a post-Christian society, we have spotted a man with a donut in one hand and rosary beads in another. Child, I'm about to whoop Satan's behind. He is boldly proclaiming truth and reason like no rigid Catholic ever has before. The David L. Gray Show begins now. Hounds of heaven. Jesus loves you and is there for you. Welcome into the David L. Gray Show, voicing truth and reason on the Guadalupe Radio Network, which is radio for your soul. And we begin in the name of uh, Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Oh, my Jesus, forgive us of our sins, save us from the fires of hell, and lead all souls to heaven, especially those in most need of thy mercy. Our Lady of Guadalupe, pray for us. St. Dominic Guzman, pray for us. Venerable Father Augustus Tolton, pray for us. So what are we talking about today? Well, here we go again with Martin Luther King Jr. Feast Day that is coming up. And um, I tried this last year. You know, today is like the anniversary show of the David O. Gray Show. We've been here for a year. And, uh, you know, last year around this time, I think I did a postscript show last year. Actually, it was after the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. It was a postscript show. And I opined about all these Catholic masses that were having um, these Martin Luther King Jr. feast days, I called them, during the liturgy, all these celebrations of Martin Luther King, the federal holiday. And I talked about how it had no place in the liturgy of the Catholic mass. It doesn't. So allow me another effort to try to preempt this disaster from happening. So I'll be talking about that. Then starting about the 20-minute mark, Casey Chalk, who is a contributing editor at the New Oxford Review, a senior contributor for The Federalist, and a frequent contributor at the American Conservative and Crisis Magazine. He comes on to talk about his new book. It's entitled The Persecuted, True Stories of Courageous Christians Living Their Faith in Muslim Lands. The phone number here is 877-757-9424 if you desire to call in and opine. And, of course, you know, we have the live streams going on the Twitter, the YouTube, the Facebook. Feel free to comment there. And um, drop in, drop a line, um, or talk to Casey. We appreciate it. Always enjoy your input. And um, so, yeah, it's the one-year anniversary of the show. That's, that's amazing. Even though this is like episode 46. Because, uh, we you know, we had some days off, you know, a fundraiser there, you know, vacation there. But, yeah, one year on Guadalupe Radio Network. So thank you for allowing me to invade your space once a week with truth, truth and reason. My producer, Cecil Anderson, is here. She's been producing this show for about a year. How's it going, Cecil? It is going very well. Thanks for the reminder that it's been a whole year. I did not remember the exact start day of this show, but that's exciting. I feel like we should be popping champagne or something. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> virtually. Hello. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. Oh, so, Cecil, I have three questions for you today. I was going to, you know, usually we have some little small chatter here, but I thought I'm going to ask Cecil these three questions, and the listeners, they can, you guys can decide which one of these three stories that I'm telling Cecil is true or not. So I have three stories, Cecil. Okay. One of them is true. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. So the first story, 
A couple walking on a beach in Northern Ireland found a message in a bottle that was launched from the United States in 2019. Hmm. The couple said they were walking on a beach on the Dewey Peninsula in Ireland when they spotted a glass bottle in the sand. The bottle contained $2 in U.S. currency and contained a note that revealed it had been launched from Ocean City, Maryland in 2019. One of the ladies says, it's a childhood dream to find something like this. Second story. A Florida man. I know you like this. <laughs> since you're from Florida. Yes. A Florida man claims to have contracted arcophobia, which is a mental health condition in which the individual experiences intense fear of heights. After being bitten by a spider in his basement, Jim Clement told the story to the Tampa Sentinel that after being bitten by a wolf spider, he suddenly was a unable to perform his job as a firefighter for the Tampa Fire Department. While, while he is in therapy, um, Jim has been assigned to a desk job in the station. Story number two. And here's story number three. A Nebraska man said, Nebraska man said an, an at-home DNA test led to a shocking discovery that he and his brother have 18 half siblings of whom they never knew. Quentin Sathoff of Franklin said his younger brother used a 23andMe DNA kit and both men were shocked when it revealed they were donor conceived. A fact they had never had been revealed to them before. Which of those stories, Cecil, do you think is true? Wow, those are some those are some doozies. <laughs> <laughs> um, goodness, see the thing is, is that all of those I could totally see happening, mm. uh, and I feel like I've seen things similar. So I'm trying to decide. Florida man is always a safe bet because, <laughs> and also I like that 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 was from Tampa. That's where I'm from. Oh wow, Tampa Bay. Uh, so that's interesting. Um, Kind of like a reverse Spider-Man. He instead of gaining powers, he loses them. <laughs> I like that. That's really unfortunate. Um, the, the bottle one. You've heard of crazy things like that, like people finding wedding rings that were lost or bottles making it. Mm -hmm. um, but it's two years enough time for bottles to cross across the the ocean to get to Ireland. Ireland. Yeah. That's a hmm. So let's see if I can give you some help. So okay. coming in in the chatterbox. Um, Jim Matthew, he says story number three is a false story. So he doesn't believe the story about the brothers finding 23 and me, 18 siblings, and that had never re been revealed to them before. Hmm. Um, someone else in the comment box says a friend of mine found her full blooded sister via ancestry. So you have some I, conflicting I do. help here. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's, I don't know if that's helpful anymore. <laughs> okay. I have one question, David. Did you write the other story? I did. Okay. Hmm. <laughs> All right, I'm just going to go with instinct. I'm going to say the first story is the false story. So a couple walking on the beach in Northern Ireland find a message in a bottle that was launched from the United States in 2019. Yep. The couple say they're walking on Dewey Beach and found a bottle containing $2, and it was from Ocean City, Maryland. That is actually a true story. Oh, man. So Florida man is the false story. Oh, the story of course. So I should have he... known. He's like the red hair. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I thought that was, I was trying to figure out how, what's a funny story. Guy gets bitten by a spider and he, now he's scared of heights. That's, that's, I mean, it's a fantastic story. The problem is, is that Florida man stories are so, are so good that like yeah. that just blended right in for me. 
<laughs> oh well, That's I guess funny. I gotta have like a wah, wah sound effect. I did not do well today. <laughs> no prize for you today, Sissel. No. <laughs> What's going on um, at the station right now? Well, I know you still have the fundraiser going on. Yeah, we still have our car raffle going on. So anyone who is interested in supporting Catholic Radio and having a chance to win a 2022 Mercedes-Benz GLA 250 on February 25th, you can contact your local general manager, whatever market that you're in, or you can go and buy them online at grnonline.com for forward slash raffle and also if you just go to our website you should see it right there nice snazzy picture of this uh night black gla 250 it's pretty snazzy yeah and i posted a link on my facebook page and on i think i posted everywhere twitter facebook youtube so if you're following me you probably have seen it and i'll post it again this week so i'm excited about who's going to win that that's a really nice suv it is it's really nice it's yeah. very exciting yep we have, do we have Back to the Father, Dave Palmer? I know he's the general manager there, the station. What's, what's cooking on Back to the Father this Friday at 2 p.m.? So very, very officially, I went and asked uh, Dave this in anticipation of your question, and he wrote down a note on a sticky note for me. Um, so <laughs> we are going to be talking about St. Anselm. Uh, and ontological, oh. the ontological argument and yes. William of Ockham and nominalism. And I hope I didn't like slaughter all those pronunciations because that was a lot in a <laughs> very yeah. short you know. And uh, so these are philosophers who are around the same time as St. Thomas yeah. Aquinas. And we're going to yeah. kind of compare their thoughts and St. Thomas's thoughts. And uh, fortunately for me, I'm the student, so I don't have to know about anything <laughs> in advance. <laughs> so if you also don't know too much about these so uh, subjects, please tune in to our uh, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter pages. We live stream only on those on Friday at 2 p.m. Central Time, and uh, you can join the discussion, ask questions. We play trivia. It's very lighthearted, very fun. If you've ever thought St. Thomas Aquinas' uh, teachings were a little bit heady or above you, which is totally me as well, uh, join us. We have two <laughs> high school interns, and we just have a lot of fun and learn a lot, too. Yeah, that's going to be a great discussion. First time I heard of, ever heard of Anselm, Anselm was from a Calvinist, and ah, I didn't know who this guy was. And, of course, he didn't call him St. Anselm, but... Um, yeah, I really got to know the ontological argument, and um, and uh, so yeah, that's going to be a really great discussion. Yeah, I can't wait to tune in for that one. Oh yeah, Cecil, before you head out, yes. um, TMTS on the chat box said, I guess okay. So a giveaway, if you would have known anything about fire departments or even myself, <laughs> I would have changed the story. Apparently, there aren't many desk jobs in the fire department. Oh. That makes sense. Right? <laughs> yeah, like made sense honestly the fire part of it like didn't hardly register to me and i guess in hindsight yeah and someone else also commented that mary commented no way a firefighter would wimp out like that yeah. um and i'm like yeah that's true that's kind of uh, that's that's legitimate yeah <laughs> i yeah. just heard florida man and said yep <laughs> go <laughs> I, I didn't even really process it much more than that <laughs> thanks Cecil. of course and make sure you guys um, download the Guadalupe Radio Network app on your smartphone and use it to listen to all of our programming all day long, starting with the Catholic Drive Time show in the morning with Joe McClain, Adrian Francesca, Rudolph Carlos, 6 a.m. Central Time. Also, please subscribe to us on all the social media platforms, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. This is the David L. Gray Show, voicing truth and reason on the Guadalupe Radio Network, which is radio for your soul. GC in the comment box says, please pray for us this coming Friday. We are having a rally for life in Trenton, New Jersey. Abortion is so legal in New Jersey. Related to that, um, the Martin Luther King Jr. Day, you know, federal holiday next Monday. I need a comment on that. So I, I'm not going to sit here and 
tell you that Martin Luther King Jr. Day should not be celebrated um, or his name even mentioned during the liturgy because he was a plagiarizer or because he didn't believe in a bodily, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, which he seems to not have, or because he surrounded himself with Marxists and openly sympathized with some aspects of Marxism. Nor am I going to use the FBI as my source of information about people, despite the fact that they believe that Martin Luther King Jr. was a sexual deviant and a communist. Those are items of interest, but it is not the most serious thing about Martin Luther King Jr. that we Catholics should consider before going around creating an idol and saints out of him in a mass. To the contrary, it is the fact that he was a birth control, Planned Parenthood, Margaret Sanger championing eugenicists. And that is why I find it so utterly disgusting why anyone would dare celebrate him during the Catholic Mass. He is a eugenicist. Love Planned Parenthood. Listen to King's own words from a 1957 Advice for Living column published by Ebony Magazine, in which a mother wrote to King saying, and I quote, We have seven children. And another one is on the way. Our four-room apartment is bursting at the seams, and, and living space in Harlem is at a premium. I have suggested to my husband that we practice birth control, but he says that when God thinks we have enough children, he will put it to a stop. I've tried to reason with him, the lady says in this, in this question, since Martin Luther King Jr., and I continue to quote, but he says, talking about her husband, he says that birth control is sinful. Is he right? To which King's response was, in short, uh, your husband is wrong. I quote, and he says back in this letter, advice column, he says, I do not think it is correct to argue that birth control is sinful. The natural order is given us, not as an absolute finality, but as something to be guided and controlled. Changes in social and economic conditions have made smaller families desirable, King says, if not necessary. A final, a final consideration is that women must be considered as more than breeding machines, King says. It is true that the primary obligation of a woman is that of motherhood, but an intelligent mother wants to be responsible motherhood, a, a motherhood which she has given her consent not a motherhood due to impulse and chance. And this means birth control in some form. All of these factors seem to me to make birth control rational and morally justifiable. Unquote. Martin Luther King commenting on a moral necessity of artificial contraception. King also put his beliefs into action. He supported Planned Parenthood like no one else before during his time and agreed to serve on a sponsoring committee of Planned Parenthood study on contraception. To this, King wrote, and I quote again, I have always been deeply interested and sympathetic with the total work of the Planned Parenthood Federation. King repeatedly wrote about how family planning programs are important, again writing about his hopes that, quote, the federal and state governments will begin to appropriate large sums to educate people to the need for such contraceptive devices. In 1976, his wife, Coretta Scott King, 
um, well, Dr. King accepted an award from Planned Parenthood, but he couldn't attend the award dinner. Um, this is the inaugural Margaret Sanger Award. So his wife, Coretta Scott King, accepted it on his behalf. But in the speech that Coretta Scott King wrote that Martin Luther King Jr. wrote, but uh, Coretta delivered, he says this, quote, Margaret Sanger had to commit what was then called a crime in order to enrich humanity. And today we honor her courage and vision, for without them, there would have been no beginning. Our short beginning in the struggle for equality by nonviolent direct action may have also been so resolute without the tradition established by Margaret Sanger <laughs> and people like her. So King Jr. gives Margaret Sanger a eugenicist, a racist who wanted to exterminate blacks. He gives her credit for the civil rights movement. King wrote, going on to say that the American family, American, uh, African-American community has a quote, again, I quote, he says, a special and urgent concern with issues of family planning. Right, so birth control, contraception, good for black folk. That's your hero. That's Martin Luther King, a eugenicist, a, a advocate of contraception, birth control, a lover, Margaret Sanger, a racist. That's who you want to celebrate in your mass. Interesting. And this Planned Parenthood, birth control pill endorsing, harming women, and eugenicists, that's who you want to make eye count out of. That's who you want to hang pictures out of, of and put them in a Catholic church. I know, I know. Catholics have been convinced by <laughs> Mrs. Avita King, who works for Priest for Life, that her uncle was pro-life. I know she's told us that. We've all heard that. And I would like to believe that if Martin Luther King Jr. were here today and saw the abortion genocide of Planned Parenthood, the organization he loved, has committed against the black community, he might have had a change of heart. Maybe, or maybe he would have pulled a Jesse Jackson and just kept quiet so not to lose influence with the Democrats. We don't know. All we have are the things he wrote and stated that prove that he was eugenicist. Second reason we need to keep these Martin Luther King feast days out of the mass. Martin Luther King was an anti-Catholic. He's anti-Catholic, just like the man whose name he decided to rename himself after. It used to be Marvin, changed his name to Martin to match his the person who he admired, Martin Luther. <clears throat> Although he worked for a um, Catholics on the civil rights movement. He met with um, Pope John Paul. I'm sorry, Pope John the 23rd. Uh, for his entire life, he voluntarily chose to reject the Catholic Church and her teachings. I mean, he this here's someone who had access to many priests, to a pope. Knew, so he had access to make a choice. He had the information, yet he rejected the Holy Eucharist, Christ, and his church. So I'm not quite sure why we're not praying for the soul of a man who could be in purgatory, if not hell right now, rather than idolize him. Great harm is being caused by the celebration of Martin Luther King Jr. The, the Protestants aren't praying for a soul. Therefore, it remains on us. But we have forsaken our duty to pray for a soul and rather chosen this disgusting gravitation towards the unholy days of the government. Final reason. I find it contrary to the principal purpose of the liturgy of the mass, which is to divinize us. 
to introduce into the liturgy the things of the world, things that do not promote our holiness. The priest ought not to be calling people into the ascension of Christ while also introducing them to things that pull them down into the darkness of the world. Sure, mention as many saints as you want during the liturgies. We have feast days for those holy souls. Celebrate those feast days and those holy souls. But not only, because not only do we not know that they're in heaven and they're interceding for us, but we also know the reason why we introduce the saints and talk about them and have their feast days is because we know that these are individuals whom we can follow to heaven. Yet by introducing Martin Luther King Jr. into the liturgy, into the Catholic Mass, into the homilies, as an example for us to follow, promoting his work as civil rights for, for the living, while not mentioning his denial of civil rights for babies in the womb, all these priests are doing is harming souls. No one should be following Martin Luther King Jr. anywhere because we do not know his final destination. Stop creating these liturgies that remind us of the world, that embrace the world. Keep the liturgy pure, holy, and other. Please, no more Martin Luther King Jr. feast days and no more making an idol of him in your homilies. And none of what I'm saying takes away from any of his wonderful contributions that he made to the world. God bless him for the work he did, the marches, the sit-ins, whatever. But I only say this to say that his place of honor should never be, should never be, ever, ever, ever be, in a liturgy of the Catholic Mass. And that's all I know about that. Right after the break, Casey Chalk, who is a contributing editor of the New Oxford Review, a senior contributor at a Federalist, a frequent contributor to the American Conservative Craft Magazine, comes on to talk about his new book, The Persecuted, True Stories of Courageous Christians Living Their Faith in Muslim Lands. This is the David L. Gray Show, voicing truth and reason on the Guadalupe Radio Network, which is radio for your soul. And inspired. Hi, Joe McLean here, host of the Catholic Drive Time, heard Monday through Friday, 6 a.m. Central, 7 Eastern, right here on the Guadalupe Radio Network. News and information, Catholic conversation, inspiration, fun, and prizes are involved. Log on to our website to get all the details, to find all the information, the podcast, the videos, and so much more. GRNOnline.com. That's GRNOnline.com forward slash CDT. God love you. Hello, how would you like a chance to win a Mercedes-Benz? What's up with the accent, Dave? Oh, hey, Cecil. Just putting on a posh accent, because this year with the GRN, we're raffling off a pretty... Oh, you mean the 2022 Mercedes-Benz GLA 250? That's right. And no. that all listeners need to do to get their tickets is to contact their general manager or visit grnonline.com forward slash raffle, and that all the funds raised go to the GRN. Tickets are only one for $25 or five for 100 Yeah, pretty much. Oh, I took over your spot again, didn't I? Well, it was probably for the best. Cheerio! 
Hi, this is Len Oswald, president of the GRN, with this week's GRN Family Minute. Since going on the air in July 2000, no single individual has influenced the mission of the Guadalupe Radio Network more than Mother Mary Angelica, the founders of the Eternal Word Television Network. EWTN became the largest religious television and radio network in the world as a result of Mother Angelica's prayers and tireless work. Her singular goal was to save as many souls as possible through EWTN programming. Her vision of populating heaven is a mission we share at the Guadalupe Radio Network. After going on the air with our first station in July 2000, we have tried to emulate Mother Angelica's examples of frequent prayer, especially Eucharistic adoration, and also in the way in which she led the EWTN operation by putting complete trust in God's providence. Even though she is no longer with us physically, she is always with us spiritually. We are your Catholic radio, radio for your soul. Welcome back in to the David O. Gray Show, voicing truth and reason on the Guadalupe Radio Network, which is radio for your soul. Casey Chalk is a contributor, contributing editor at the New Oxford Review, a senior contributor for The Federalist and a frequent contributor to the American Conservative and Crisis Magazine. He holds a BA in history and a master's in teaching from the University of Virginia and a master's in theology from the Notre Dame Graduate School of Theology at Christian College. He lives with his wife, Claire, and her four children in his native Northern Virginia. He comes on to talk about his new book, The Persecuted, True Stories of Courageous Christians Living in Muslims Lands. Welcome on to the David O'Gray Show, Casey. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a real pleasure. Yeah, it's my pleasure to have you here. Really impressed by your book. Um, you know, as an author myself, I can tell when, you know, you know, somebody who reads a lot of books, I can tell the distinction when a person writes a book from a place of passion rather than from a place of, um, you know, seemingly necessity. So I can tell your book is a, a work of passion. I, I want to get into it. Um, I could really tell you believe in the topic, and I appreciate that. But heading into the topic, I just want to start, you know, since it's your first time on the show, I just want to start from a place of, you know, tell us a little bit about, you know, your faith journey. I know you're a cradle Catholic, but tell us more. Yeah, so I was um, born and raised originally in the Catholic Church in Northern Virginia, Irish and Polish ancestry. So there's the Catholicism. Um, but uh, my parents left the church uh, shortly after my first communion. And uh, went into a different couple different forms of Protestantism, ultimately landed in uh, non-denominational evangelicalism. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I ultimately uh, kind of like found my way into Calvinism as a college student and actually attended a Calvinist uh, seminary uh, in the D.C. area after I graduated uh, from, from the University of Virginia. Um, but I ended up uh, finding my way back into the Catholic Church in my mid-20s, uh, kind of <coughs> studying it through a lot of things that I was exposed to my seminary program and then a couple of my close friends uh, converted to Catholicism and kind of putting the pressure on me to to study the church's claims and realize that they were the truth. Um, so I've been a Catholic uh, since 2010. Yeah. What is your attraction to, to Calvinism? Um, I, <clears throat> grace. I think that's what it is for many people who are, are Calvinist is this real emphasis on grace, right? Like we're all concerned about, are we going to really be in, in uh, are we going to make it to the end and, and get to heaven or not? And Calvinism provides an answer not a yeah. very not a very good one upon 
uh, you know, further reflection, but, it, you know, this idea of the elect that uh, yeah. you can be saved if you, uh, you know, are, are a Christian and, and profess your faith in Christ, then you can be saved and have eternal assurance uh, that, that you've got it. Of course, that doesn't really hold up to intellectual scrutiny, but it's, it certainly was something that was attractive to me. Yeah. Was it so attractive you got a tattoo of a tulip somewhere on your body? <laughs> not, yeah, not okay. that bad, but I did think okay. about getting the T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Who are some of the saints that you, because I know, I know it's one of my best friends, <clears throat> Ezekiel, he's he's a Calvinist. We had some great conversations, but he always had this appeal to Augustine, right? Which I, I could never really understand that. Of course, he called him Augustine, but as like, he's a Catholic. So what what is what is that? Can you explain to me that thing that Calvinists have for, for Augustine? It's because Augustine does have such a high view of grace, and there's also a lot of predestinarian teaching and language in Augustine. Of course, this is one of the things I realized when I actually started to read Augustine, uh, not just the sort of like the clipped out proof texts that Calvinists oftentimes mm. cite from him, but okay. the entirety of his theological corpus. I started to realize, oh, wow, Augustine has a very high view of the papacy and yeah. Mary and believes in the necessity of good works for salvation. So I think that's part of the disconnect is, is that Calvinists oftentimes, as many Protestants are, don't have a very strong familiarity with the entirety of the early church fathers. There's more of like a picking and choosing. Mm. Yeah. The cherry picking. So I have to remember that. So, and everybody in the audience is watching on the live streams or listening to the radio. Remember this, just with, just with Casey share a few <clears throat> that Calvinists are using the cliff notes version of Augustine, <laughs> not, not the complete corpus of his work. So interesting. So let's get into your to your book though. Um, you guys can find this at Sophia Press. If you're watching on live stream, you can see the book. It's called The Persecuted. Really nice cover, matte cover. Uh, true stories of courageous Christians living their faith on Muslim lands. It's, it's pro, pro, uh, published by Sophia Institute Press. You can go to sophiainstitute.com to see the book there or anywhere you know where you like buying your books. What? Uh, so can we get just get into starting? What's the when people open up the book, what's the structure of the book? What are they getting into? What did they what did they see? What did they see? What's the layout? The book starts with a forward by my good friend Peter Vree, who currently runs New Oxford Review, where I do a lot of my writing. But then from there, I, I talk about the particular uh, famous case of Asia Bibi, who suffered persecution in Pakistan, and how her life sort of correlates with my own um, interest in South Asia. I, I uh, Earlier in my life, I served with the Department of Defense in Afghanistan. So while she was starting to experience a lot of persecution, I was in the country next door. Um, but then from there, I, I moved to talking about moving to Thailand, which although it's thousands of miles removed from Pakistan and the rest of the majority Muslim world, there are a lot of Pakistani Christians there who have fled persecution, not just Pakistanis, they're from all over the Middle East, Syria, Iraq, Libya, you name it. Um, there are probably Christians who have fled to Bangkok. Um, so the book that from basically the rest of the book discusses uh, our experiences in Thailand, getting to know a lot of these persecuted Christians. Um, and then I end by scoping out again and talking about the, the global phenomenon of the persecution of Christians in Muslim lands. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I like the layout of the book. And you do start it off with Asia Bibi. And we're speaking with Casey Chalk, who his, he's on here talking about his book, The Persecuted, True Stories of Courageous Christians Living and Muslims lands. Before I get into Asia Bibi, because I think that's, I, I like the way you start off the book with that. It's a story that a lot of people would have may at least heard her name, right? But what inspired you for this to be your, because I believe this is your very first 
book is the only thing I could find on you. Is this your very first book? Yeah, it definitely is my first book. Uh, okay. The reason for that is uh, I, I basically made a promise to the Pakistani Catholics that I got to know when, uh, when we were living in Thailand that I would continue to advocate for them and, uh, and seek to, uh, to make their stories known and help uh, them uh, to alleviate their suffering and, and Lord willing to eventually get them out of their great trials. So this was, you can almost kind of say it was a little bit of a Jonah experience where I was kind of maybe running away from writing this book for a little bit yeah. and then eventually COVID happened and I was stuck at home for a while. So it was almost like God was knocking on the door telling me that it was time to go ahead and, uh, and write this thing and, and do what I had promised my friends. Yeah, because you have returned from uh, Thailand in, in what year? 2017. Oh, okay, okay. And so you're encountering these, these people, these, these persecuted people, and I guess we'll get a little more into that, but because I, I guess at first you're not saying, oh man, these are some great stories. I should write a book. This is just kind of, this happens kind of organically. How do you get to start to know all these, all these different individuals? Sure. So we moved to Thailand in 2014 and um, the Catholic parish that we attended was very international. A lot of Thais, a lot of Westerners, but also right away, I noticed that there was a large number of South Asians. And like I said, I have a lot previous professional experience working in South Asia. So I was immediately kind of like in, interested in them and wanted to hear their stories. Um, they're, they're very prominent at the church. Uh, a lot of the families do various kinds of like volunteer work at the church because they really don't have anything else to do. Most of them are there illegally. They get these 30-day tourist visas um, because Thailand's economy is based uh, is seemingly based on tourism. So they let okay. in people from all over the place. But then they overstay their visas and then they're there illegally. Um, so there's not a whole lot of stuff for them to do except you know work at churches and uh, other labor on the black market. So we got to just know a lot of these families very intimately over the three years that we were uh, living in Bangkok. Yeah, yeah. And so Ozzy Bibi, so you start off, the, uh, you open up your book retelling a story that, like I said, many people in the world may have heard about it in some way or the other. Can you talk about how her story and how uh, her story and how her story relates to in, in some way to the other stories that you share with us in a book about the persecuted and those seeking asylum. So Azia Bibi uh, is a uh, Pakistani woman. Uh, she was a, a poor farmhand in a, a rural town um, in sort of a, a you know rural part of Pakistan. She had some conflicts with some of the Muslim uh, people in her community. And uh, there was a particular incident that happened where uh, she drank water from the same cup as uh, some of these Muslims, and they found that very offensive. Um, Pakistan over the last, I don't know, and now we're talking probably 30 to 40 years, has increasingly become more radicalized. There's a lot more uh, Saudi-funded um, madrasas that promote a much more radical and militant form of Islam that um, doesn't really have a place for Christians in society. It views them as a, as a nuisance, as a stain mm. on the purity of uh, Pakistan. So. Um, some of her neighbors basically accused her of blasphemy. That needs to be explained too. So Pakistan has uh, this really terrible uh, blasphemy law that's been in place uh, for decades where it's really easy to accuse someone of blasphemy. And this is often used by Muslims to uh, attack Christians. So they'll accuse them of having committed blasphemy against the Quran. Sometimes, you know, even by something as like, oh, they desecrated a Quran. They, you know, they drew it in or ripped pages out of it, or they insulted the prophet Muhammad, that sort of thing. So in this case, that's what they did. They, they claim that, um, Azia Bibi had uh, insulted the Prophet Muhammad in Allah, and uh, she was uh, she was attacked uh, physically and then uh, detained, 
and eventually uh, put on trial and convicted of blasphemy. She was actually sentenced to death pretty remarkably yeah. just yeah. for that. Um, one of the one of the most terrifying things about that story is the fact that when the judge was evaluating some of these people who had come forward to uh, provide evidence against her, the judge said, "Well, this uh, Muslim guy has a has a long beard, so we know he can be trusted." Because in in some of these radical Muslim communities, if you have a long beard, that it means you have authority. Fascinating. Um, but anyway, the, the only reason that Azia Bibi is free now and living uh, in Canada uh, anonymously, basically, barely anybody knows where she is, is oh, because okay. oh. her case attracted so much international attention, uh, including from Pope Benedict XVI at the time. He mentioned her yeah. during one of his audiences in Rome. So there were a number of countries um, and, and international leaders that basically pressed the Pakistani government to let her go because it, 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 was, a, it was a charade. It was terrible what happened to her. It never should have happened. But the, the problem is, is that, um, I mean, it, it worked out well for Asia Bibi. She was able to get out, but there are mm -hmm. thousands of other Pakistanis. That's their daily experience um, wow. is suffering the kinds of intimidation, harassment, false accusations. Uh, every day, including and th that was one of the most amazing things for me was when I got to know these Pakistanis in Bangkok who had fled persecution, how closely their stories align with what Asia Bibi had experienced. But they just don't get the same publicity and global publicity or um, appeals, national appeals that uh, um, Asia did, right? Yeah, that's exactly right, which is part of the reason for this book is to try to raise more awareness regarding their plight. Yeah, yeah. And you can pick up this book. This is The Persecuted by Casey Chalk, his, his first book, a phenomenal entry into publishing. Um, it's true stories of courageous Christians living their faith in Muslim lands. Just go to Amazon. I know they have a lot of reviews there. Check it out there. And I um, hope that you um, take some time to get it yourself and, and, and read it and see how you can get engaged in, in this, in this cause. Cause Casey, you know, maybe we'll get a chance to talk about that. He, he listened a number of ways that, you know, what, what can you do to help this out? As he just said, you know, God bless Asia for getting all the notoriety she did and publicity and, and concern, even from Pope Benedict XVI at that time. But there's a lot of people, um, this is their daily experience being clues of blasphemy and, and crimes against, um, Islam. How is living outside the United States in um, in the South Asia? How did that really shape your perspective on Christian persecution? Actually, and I ask you that question because um, you know I think when when we travel outside the United States and start talking to people, I just think we get a different perspective. We get a different perspective of the United States. First of all, how people think about us, but we also see things different from from their perspective that we don't really get from the things that were fed in here, fed, you know, through the media here. So how did, how did just living in, in South Asia, you and your wife, and, you know, I know you guys were having children along the way. How did that, how did that really shape your experience and how, what can, what, what can, how can that help us? I think uh, the persecution of Christians was something that I had been aware of for a long time, even going back to my evangelical days. Um, but it really was made present in a, in a much more acute form when I actually got to develop relationships with a lot of these um, Christians who had fled Muslim persecution, because um, it's no longer like a story that you read on the internet um, or something that you hear in a podcast or something like that. But I'm actually, I'm, I'm talking with, I'm befriending, I'm visiting the homes of people who are they're really saints. I mean, these people are really remarkable. And in some cases, you know, these people end up becoming martyrs. Um, there, are, there are lots of cases um, that uh, have not attracted a lot of media attention of um, 
Christians, particularly in Pakistan, being killed for their faith. Probably the most famous recent example was 2016 when there was a bombing on uh, Easter. And there was a big picnic of Christians, um, and about 75 of these Christians were killed by a suicide bombing. Um, so we hear that in the news from the United States. We think, oh my gosh, it's terrible. But it's another thing when you, uh, are, you know, are, are you know worshiping at mass with people who fled that um, and can speak yeah. to their own stories of of having lived through it. Man, yeah. And on page, I thought a couple of things in your book I wanted I wanted to extract here and ask you if you can uh, build upon this to help us understand. And on page one fifty two in your book, you state that uh, since returning to the United States, I often remembered with fondness the ecumenical effort to address the humanitarian crisis in Bangkok. So talk about that. The, what does that what does that look like? So it's not just Catholic parishes that are helping these um, Pakistani Christians. There's also a very large evangelical church in Bangkok called the Evangelical Church of Bangkok, where a lot of uh, Protestant Pakistani Christians go to get to get help and services, um, which is great. God bless them for doing that work. But uh, most particularly, I think I saw that ecumenical um, collaboration when uh, we would go to the Immigration Detention Center or IDC. So this is a place where um, a lot of these Pakistani Christians end up when they've overstayed their visas. The Thai immigration authorities do these periodic raids where they go and they find these people at their homes um, and uh, basically take them to the IDC. And they can't get out of the IDC uh, unless they pay something like a $1,500 bail. So a lot of these people, I mean, they don't have that kind of money. So they're stuck there and they live they, they live basically in a prison. And the conditions there are terrible. It's not sanitary. It's very corrupt. Um there's a lot of uh, you know questionable behavior that goes on there. There's sexual harassment and assaults and things that are happening by the Thai authorities. Um, so my wife and I got hooked up with an organization, actually run by Mormons, uh, curiously enough, yeah. that would go in there and provide all kinds of services um, to these people. So they would you know put together packages of food and other necessities, and they had this really um, wonderful schedule where they had this long list of everybody who was in the IDC and when they had been met so that they could kind of like periodically check up on people and see if they needed, you know, additional advocacy. Um, because there's, there's also legal organizations, uh, one in particular in, in Bangkok that uh, serves to kind of help these uh, disenfranchised communities. Um, so yeah, we, we, we went to the IDC frequently with Mormons and evangelicals and even, <laughs> I even met some Orthodox folks at one point. So that was really cool to see, um, yeah, the body of Christ. Um, I, well, I mean, the Mormons are, um, <laughs> I mean, they're heretics of a different brand, but, uh, but all the same, you know, it was, it was still remarkable and, and, uh, and a great blessing to be able to work alongside of all of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, sure. And you do mention in your book, I think on page 71, you say a 30 year old Bernice man reported being pushed while getting fingerprinted because he quotes, I could not stop my fingers from moving. So the, the role of the detention centers, I mean, you described them a little bit. Uh, you talked about how um, different various humanitarian groups and faith groups are going in there to help people in these conditions that sound like, I don't even know if we have prisons like this in the United States anymore, but it sounds like just a, a dangerous and harsh place where you don't have much appeal, you know, not a whole lot of power, if any, um, you're at the mercy of um, the detention center guards or whatever. Um, but what is, what is, what's the role? I mean, we're, we're, 
where does the detention centers, where do they, they fit in with people with the, the asylum process? I mean, how long are people there? I mean, what's, what's going on? So people can be in the IDC for years. <coughs> Excuse me. In some cases, they are. Um, a lot of times people get out only because they have some sort of benefactor, um, someone they met at church. That, that was the only reason that the D'Souza's, one of the families that I describe in the book, were able to get out um, was because my wife and I and a bunch of other friends and family were able to pay to get them out um, on multiple occasions. They were in the IDC on two separate occasions. So, oh, wow. yeah, I mean, I, I would not be surprised if some of the people that I saw in the IDC in 2017 are still there. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm getting over the flu. But, um, yeah, I mean, people have died in the IDC, and they certainly don't want reporters going in there. The BBC, I want to say in 2016, se uh, secretly got a crew in there um, to take some video footage and show how terrible the conditions were. And, uh, yeah, I mean that that it just goes to show how much the ties kind of want to you know keep a tight hold on this and not let the rest of the world know what kinds of horrible things are going on inside these places. Yeah, yeah. We're speaking with Casey Casey Chalk. He's the author author of the Persecutors, a big book published by the um, Sophia Institute Press. You can buy it at their website or anywhere where you get your books. We have someone in the com box, Casey. Um, yeah, Paul says. He says, I'll be reading this book. <laughs> and then there's a question here. <clears throat> oh, yeah, from TMTS. In the 1990s, the, the, the Pakistani Supreme Courts always overrode the decisions made by the Sharia courts. And they're curious if that has changed. Do you, do you know how to address that question? Um, I'm not sure what exactly that person is asking about. What I can say is, is that, um, there are a number of Pakistanis who are currently being held in prison for having committed blasphemy. Uh, no one has been, um, executed for blasphemy in a while. I think because if anyone were to actually, um, be executed, then it probably would attract some international outrage. Mm. But there are certainly many people who are currently in prison for having committed blasphemy against uh, the Quran or the Prophet Muhammad. So there's like, is there like two different court systems? There's like a Sharia court, um, and then there's like a Supreme Court that can override their decisions or something like that. Is there like these competing institutions? That's yes. So there is, there are Sharia courts uh, throughout the country that operate like at a more local and religious level. And then, yeah, Pakistan does have a, a Supreme Court, which historically has actually been a bit more secular and more sympathetic to freedom of religion and freedom of speech cases. And there's been a tension in the past between the Pakistani Supreme Court and uh, religious extremists and, and the government when it has you know sought to promote a lot of uh, Muslim extremism. Yeah. If you have a question for Casey, if you want, if you want to call in, please do call in, ask a question or a pine 877-757-9424. That's 877-757-9424. And I guess this is our, it's our anniversary show. I guess if you call in, I guess I'll, I'll gift you a copy of the book. I don't know. That's our anniversary show. I guess we can do that much, right? So if you call in, I make sure you do get a copy of the book. Um, Another thing that you wrote is on, on page 81 of your book. Uh, you says that there's um, somewhere between 7,000 to 12,000 asylum seekers and refugees. Most of them are Catholics and evangelical Christians, you say. And so when we hear of all these 
asylum seekers from Muslim countries. Uh, is it does it look different? Do you know? Does it look different? Because we hear always about asylum seekers or people seeking asylum in like European countries and Italy or even other places. Does it look different in Asia with people fleeing persecution? So, if we're talking about um, Christians who have fled persecution, from, you know, in Muslim countries, yeah, I mean, it is a little bit different because um, this the seven to twelve thousand number. That's just Christians in Bangkok and, and the rest of, of Thailand. Okay. Um, so, they the goal of these people is not to stay in Thailand. So that does make it different than you know what we're seeing with um, the large number of Muslim migrants that are coming up um, through North Africa and the Middle East into Europe in that these Christians know that Thailand is not the ultimate destination for them. Although some um, perhaps a little bit more um, cleverly have figured out that they can kind of, as long as they stay low, you know, uh, low on the radar in Bangkok and, and they can avoid the Thai authorities, they can kind of get by. And I mean, yeah. it's not, it's obviously a pretty terrible situation and not a good place to live, try to live your life and raise kids and stuff, but a lot of people do it. But most of the people that are going um, to Thailand, they want to get out. Their goal is to get refugee status. So they show up as asylum seekers. They apply to the UN, uh, or what's called the UNHCR, High Commissioner for Refugees, to try to get that gold card uh, refugee status. The problem is, is that uh, the process takes a very long time. It can take more than a year to have your case heard. Mm. Most of the time it's rejected. And then you can uh, offer an appeal, which then takes like another year. And most of the time that's rejected. And even when you have a lot of evidence uh, to support your claim. So some of the families I discussed in this book, they have mounds of evidence. I mean, newspaper clippings in Urdu describing what had happened to them, affidavits from um, Pakistani clergy, Thai clergy, in one case, the Archbishop of Karachi saying explicitly, these people have been harassed, physical uh, violence has taken place against them. And even then their uh, claim was denied by the UN, which just goes to show that something is terribly wrong with the way that the UN is processing these claims in Bangkok. Um, so most of these people, uh, they never get the refugee status they're looking for. In the rare cases wh where they do, they then go into this other pile of people who are kind of waiting to get repatriated to one of the very small number of countries around the world that actually takes refugees, which is not a, it's not a long list. United States, Canada, Netherlands, UK, there's a handful of other ones in Europe. Um, so uh, just because you get the refugee status doesn't mean you're going to you know, be going on for a new life in the West anytime soon. So it doesn't it doesn't really even solve your problem, which is why this really remains such a great humanitarian crisis. Yeah. So even though they're in Thailand, like you said, they may be living under the radar. You said that's not really their final destination. It, the happenstance is that they could just end up being there for quite a long time, huh? Yeah. I mean, some of the fam one of the families that I know that I discuss in the persecuted, they've been in, in there for uh, in Bangkok for more than 10 years at this point. Wow. What's going on with your wife while this whole thing is going on? Um, is she is was she part? Because I know you guys are having young kids. Um, was was your wife involved with the the work you were doing in any way? And what was her what was her thoughts? So my wife Claire, I think at first, um, you know, she didn't have the background with South Asia that I did. She, it wasn't like she had read a whole lot about the persecuted church in Muslim countries, like I had, including in my when I was a Protestant seminarian. It was something that I had. I'd studied under one of the pr prominent Protestant scholars that writes on this topic. Okay. Um, so it wasn't something that I think came naturally to her, but uh, you know, she's a saint in her own regard. And uh, she very quickly realized that, you know, this was something I was passionate about. And it was something that she should be passionate about too. So mm -hmm. she developed very close friendships with some of these um, 
Pakistani Catholics as well. So, for example, you know, the ones, the, the Sousa family that went into the IDC, the detention center for a long time, the second time they were there for 10 months, she was visiting them, I want to say, every other week for that for the entirety of that time, you know, bringing them food and, and clothing and other kinds of necessities. So, um, yeah, she, she, I mean, she views these people as friends as much as I do. And I credit the book as much. I mean, I wrote it, but my wife edited it. She was the one that, wow. uh, um, you know, provided a lot of feedback on many of the stories I told. Um, yeah. When uh, one of the families, when, when we helped to get them to go back to Pakistan, because it was their only option. And um, uh, at one point, one, one, one of the, the, the father of that family was actually um, physically assaulted and uh, beaten almost to death. And we started a, go my wife was the one who started a GoFundMe page for that guy um, so that we could raise money for his medical expenses. So, I mean, yeah, this is very, as much as, uh, I mean, she should, she really should be listed as a co-author co on the book. She's <laughs> so, as you come so deeply invested in this. Yeah. How, how's, how have you um, enjoyed the feedback? What type of feedback have you gotten about, um, about the book so far? It's been nothing but positive. Um, which uh, I'm grateful for, but I'm also almost waiting for the other shoe to drop, you know, I'm waiting for like, you know, some, uh, I don't know, prominent scholar or something like that to uh -huh. take me to task for you know, getting some wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's always, yeah, you, yeah. There's always that fear out there. Yeah. The, 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 uh, the scholarly bad review. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so do you, do you um, have any plans to like do anything else on this topic? Any other groundwork or any other any other works on the subject? Yeah, so um, I've sent copies of the book to the families that we write about. I, I felt like that was the very least that I could do at this point for them, besides you know raising awareness regarding their story. But they're desperate for our help. Um, one of the, fa the 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 family that had to go to back to Pakistan, the D'Souzas, where the you know the father was beaten almost to death. I just got an email from him last week. Where he talked about they're, they're basically living under house arrest now in a in a um, self-imposed house arrest in a suburb of Karachi. So he doesn't work at all. Um, he had a motorized rickshaw that he was using kind of like as a taxi cab driver, but uh, these Muslim extremists burned it, um, and uh, and so and like I said, they, they almost killed him. So he doesn't leave his house much. COVID's been a little bit of a weird blessing in that regard because they can actually go out um, and wear masks and not be noticed as much. But he is you know begging me for help. You know how can can you help get me out of the country? What can you do? You know, his uh, his son is in school. They know that his son is a Christian. They know that his they want to know about his dad. Why is why doesn't your dad have a job? Uh, they separate his son from the rest of the students because he's a Christian. Um, and he has gosh, his oldest daughter. She's probably almost twenty years old at this point. I guess, yeah, I think she was sixteen when they left in two thousand seventeen. So she's more than twenty years old. What future does she have? Um, so I think that my next plan is perhaps to do some video, maybe interviews like you're doing for me right now, David, where I can kind of do an update for some of yeah. these families yeah. and put them up on Sophia Institute's website um, and maybe on YouTube and places so that people have an idea that you know this is, this is still going on, right? I mean, yes, I wrote the book and it's new, yeah. but this is an ongoing crisis that I want to raise awareness about so that we can get these people out of, out of these terrible situations and, and in, into the United States or somewhere else. Okay, cool. Let me get a caller in here. Uh, Ramos Maria, how's it going? Hi, David. Good. Thanks for calling in. Where are you calling in from? New Jersey. New Jersey. Oh, wow. So we're going to give you a free book. We're going to send you a free book. Make sure you stay on the line. Um, Cecil is going to get your address. I'm going to send you a free copy of um, Casey's chalk book, The Persecuted. 
Thank you. Yeah, thanks for calling into our anniversary show. Did you have a comment or question for Casey? Um, oh, it's okay. Stay on hope. All right, so um, I had another, I had another. Um, so. Oh yeah, so we have a couple, I think a minute or so left. Actually about one minute and 16 seconds. What can people do to get more involved with the work of um, that needs to be done over there to help bring awareness or even care packages? I mean, what, what, type, what type of things do you, what, what suggestions do you have to offer about what people can do who want to get involved? I would encourage people to start with prayer um, incorporate prayer for the persecuted church into their daily or, or weekly, weekly prayers, you know, offer rosaries, um, have masses said on their behalf. I mean, I, I really do believe in the power of God to, to do good things and, and to, and to bring about radical change. We, I've seen it in some of the cases with my Pakistani friends, um, him, God bringing relief and help to them. So start there. There are a lot of organizations that, uh, provide support to the persecuted church. Um, three that I often name are, um, U.S., Conference of Catholic Bishops has a place on their website where you can give money um, to support the persecuted church, as does the Knights of Columbus. And then um, lastly, the Barnabas Fund, which is evangelical, but like the persecuted provides uh, a lot of stories that explain um, individual cases of people and where your money's going, right? So it's getting as like down into the weeds as your money went to provide farming equipment for this Christian suffering in Syria yeah. or whatever. Awesome. Um, and lastly, I would encourage people to buy the book and send it to your local representative. We need to get more of our politicians um, concerned about this, uh, aware of this topic and concerned about it and seeking to help the persecuted church throughout the world. Because if there's anybody that should be um, brought to the United States, it's these uh, fantastic uh, you know, Christian saints uh, living awesome. in Muslim lands. Thanks, Casey. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for telling us the story. Go out and get his book. And thank you for tuning in. I'll be back same time next week, same place. And I look forward to conversing with you again. In between time, you can visit me at davidelgray.info. But until then, until next time, remember that Jesus loves you and is there for you. And live your life like salvation matters. May the abundance of our Lord's blessings and graces fall upon you. Amen. Human trafficking.